welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hi, and welcome to Think Like a Lawyer with Above the Law. We got Ellie Mistal in New York, and this is Joe Patrice. Ellie? What's up? There we go. So this is our second episode after our amazingly successful first episode. Welcome back. This week, we're going to be talking a little bit about sports. What's going on in the world of sports that really grinds your gears, Ellie? Yeah, so I know, I, I'm not sure when this is going to air, so it might be a little bit, maybe, uh, I don't know, the president might have weighed in by this point. But recently in our lives, um, a Baylor running back um, was sanctioned by the NCAA for receiving illegal and improper benefits um, while, uh, that he got through football. The benefit was a home because he was homeless. And the NCAA still knocked him down for that. It's truly the worst thing that I've heard maybe in 2015, maybe this entire decade. Well, I, there's there's a little bit of clarification there. The NCAA didn't actually rule him ineligible yet, but they were clearly going to. And so Baylor preemptively kicked him off the team. But yeah, no, it, the guy was homeless, so he got a home, and therefore they punished him. Uh, and then, it, Joe, you were saying that he apologized? Yeah, no, he apologized this morning for his actions, just told all the Baylor faithful that he's sorry that his decision to live with a roof over his head caused so much problem for the team. I sure enough is sorry, boss master NCAA. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly comes across that way. But uh, one thing that I thought about it was that, like, if you don't see SEC bias everywhere that you look, which I do, but if you don't see SEC bias everywhere, this kid from the Big 12 gets a home because he's good at football. We're not really even a home. He's a homeless kid who gets to live in a place because he's good at football he and he gets punished. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the SEC, they have a homeless guy who has boosters, put them up in their house, and we give Sandra Bullock an Oscar for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, lar- it's very similar to that story. And yet here, there's no, no love at all. No love. I really want to hear from the amateurism is so important people right now, right? Like, oh, this guy was going to get a free college degree. Why isn't that enough? Because he didn't have a house, yo. That's why it wasn't enough. All right? The, the, yeah. the, the, the BA in advanced economic basket weaving um, wasn't going to help him um, nearly as much as a roof and a hot meal. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole reason he was homeless was that he had just transferred uh, and had to sit out the year because the NCAA makes you sit out a year in between your transfers. So he transferred from Cornell, and because he wasn't on a scholarship for that year in between, he was at a community college and homeless, uh, bouncing from place to place. So he was— I didn't know that. He transferred from Cornell, like, in Ithaca? Yeah. He left an Ivy League school to go to Baylor. To walk on to Baylor, yeah. Wow, I'm not sure if I'm on his side anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess Ivy League rivalries die hard, huh? The, 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 the advanced economic basket weaving degree from Cornell might have actually been worth something. Well, fair enough. So the basket weaving management they've got up there. I, I mean, I don't know quite what, what to do. Like, yeah, it's Cornell. That's a great place. But, you know, he... Baylor's not the world's worst school. He they was got football at Cornell. Eh, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, crew, maybe he could row. 
Rowing plus home is better than football and no home. Interesting. I learned at Harvard. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I think that's the worst. That's the worst sports legal story that I've heard in quite some time. Um, what's going else is going on in the legal news, Joe? That uh, that, that is grinding your gears, if anything. You're not really well, a gear grinder. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm remarkably calm. Uh, that said, I think what one thing that I, we were going to talk about is this is probably tournament time, and we everyone out there is filling out your office pool brackets, and all of you are breaking the law in doing that. Yeah. So when I was at a at a firm, I was I undertook for my for my firm my my contribution um, to my workplace was to run the NCAA pool. At Me first, too. At my and, at my firm too. That's yeah, so well, weird. Uh huh. And now neither of us work there anymore. Uh, <laughs> I like to run. I run the grand pool for the associates, and eventually I got so good that I stepped up to running the pool for the partners. But when I did it for the partners, they didn't want me to use you know ESPN or CBS Sports. They wanted me to do it literally by hand, like it was the fifties, uh, because they didn't want you know our law firm to be seen as participating in illegal gambling um, in a public forum, which. At the time, and still does, struck me as the dumbest thing in the world, but there you go. You know, it's, and I also had to do it by hand, but not because the firm was afraid of anything. It was because no one in the firm understood computers. But it was the same, same difference. Yeah, well, you were at the firm in, like, what, 1963, 64? That was when you yeah, were? That, yeah, that's yeah, cute. Um, no, so. We had if, internet when I was a lawyer. I don't, I don't yes, we certainly did. Um, I, I've been a lawyer more recently than you. So... <laughs> Fair. Yeah. So Actually. anyway, anyway, the these brackets are largely illegal uh, unless you happen to be lucky enough to live in Nevada where you can get away with this sort of thing. But every time you're doing this is actually technically illegal bookmaking and you can get in you can get in trouble for it, but you probably won't uh, unless you're Rick Neuheisel and win ten thousand dollars in it. But isn't that where we get to the real hypocrisy of the law here? Because while it's technically illegal to have your little NCAA uh, tournament bracket pool, it's not technically illegal to have a fantasy draft or a fantasy football team and spend, let's say, a two or three or four thousand dollar entry fee on that team um, and run that team all year. That's the law says no. That's skill. Um, whereas it says that the NCAA tournament is is chance, and that strikes me as as odd in both ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's no skill <laughs> in figuring out to draft Adrian Peterson uh, first this year. Um, I mean, there was. I mean, it, yeah, it, exactly. Uh, for those of you who drafted Adrian Peterson and Ray Rice with your first two picks, you uh, there was there was some problems with that skill. You were unskillful. Yes. But yeah, so, how, yeah. is, how is it an actionable difference? The skill of drafting Adrian Peterson first versus the skill of picking Kentucky to win the tournament this year. Yeah, I mean, I. I I don't know as though there's a good answer to that other than America's a bunch of prudes who think that gambling is the world's worst thing. And I'm not making light of the fact that there's problems with people who become addicted to gambling, and certainly you got to deal with that. But the brackets at tournament time are not the hardcore living from paycheck to paycheck to just to dump it into the lottery kind of gamblers. The, this still- is a once-a-time, once-one-time-a-year thing. I want to challenge you on that. Are there still really people who think that gambling is 
is the worst, devil, most devilish thing you can do. I, I don't believe that gamb- – it's like this. They're, they're, to me, it's a, exactly the same argument as the flag-burning argument. Yeah, there are people who don't think that you should burn the American flag. I get that. But there are very few people who have that as like a top priority issue and are going to turn into uh, single-issue voters on that, on that scale. Similarly with gambling, I do think that there are people who don't like gambling, don't think it's great or whatever. But that's like you know concern number 897 compared to is Obama a Muslim? You know That's what they're concerned about. They're not actually concerned about de minimis gambling um, by office workers. I mean, they shouldn't be. Well, there's a few things going on. I think that there are people who are in office. I'm not saying that they're single-issue voters, but they're definitely crusty legislators who buy into this. And there's a lot of money coming out of Nevada devoted to making sure that any kind of competing gambling enterprise remains illegal in this country. Just Nevada? Well, no, but but look, we last election cycle, right? We had, uh, what's his name? Shelley, what is it, Adelson or whatever? The casino magnate was throwing in millions and millions of dollars on that election. And he obviously wanted to do that because he wanted to keep the secret Kenyan Muslim out of the office. But he, it's also true that they lobby all over the place to make sure that they have in Nevada a monopoly on sports gambling. I was trying to get you to make a mob joke right there. Oh, yeah, no. Because eh. right, mob, that's, that's the other part of really it. Though, run it that's, anymore? that's not me just being crazy tinfoil conspiracy hat wearing. Like the mafia is not dead. They're still around, and they have a vested interest in keeping gambling as illegal as possible. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see them as the – I don't see the mafia as the reason why we have a sports legal regime at the federal level. I, I don't think they're the real movers and shakers getting people to pass these laws, do you? Just because James Gandolfini is dead doesn't mean that he's not remembered, all right? He's still Fair. respected is what I'm trying to say. All right. Well – <laughs> we we thankfully don't have to just go off of our ramblings on this because we do have an expert with us to chat about this who subject. Who used to live with. in Vegas. Yes, who did. And now lives in Philly and is probably mobbed up. Yeah, we've not really asked him that. But we have Stephen Silver from Legal Blitz here. Stephen, hi. Hey, how are you guys doing? I am not, I am not in the mob, let the record reflect. <laughs> <laughs> In yes. fact, you have a thriving law practice. Is that right? Although, well, I, I should. I, I do live in South Philly, right in the Italian market. I'm in, I'm in rocky territory, so uh, y- you never know. Somebody's going to come knocking on your door, Ellie. <laughs> Stephen, so uh, plug yourself for a second. Besides, uh, so, so you used to work at the Las Vegas Sun. Now you write Legal Blitz, um, which is also yes. featured on Above the Law Red Line. But you also have a real paying job. I do, I do. I'm an associate in the Philadelphia office of McBreen and Kopko. And, uh, you know, I mean, the majority of my work is in civil civil defense, a lot of litigation. But, um, you know, I have some sports clients, too, and, um, and some gaming clients. And, uh, you know, it's an area I'm, I'm very interested in. And, yeah, the legalblitz.com, uh, you know, this is what I write about. A lot of the topics you just discussed and... Uh, you know, I, I spent a good amount of time in Las Vegas, um, so I, I know this industry pretty well. So why why do you think we still have uh, why that that you know thing de minimis gambling like uh, sports brackets and those kinds of things? Why do why do you think those are still illegal? Well, we should go back and and, and talk about one. The, the mob is not is not still running Vegas. You know, these are big corporations that that run Vegas now, but. 
you have holdovers from, I mean, really back to the days of the Puritans um, and these old, you know, laws. And here in Pennsylvania, you know, you have these Quaker laws um, that have really stayed on the books and influenced this anti-gambling crowd. Um, I think, to your point, there are people who really just don't like gambling. They think it is the devil's work. Um, And there are certain legislators who are more than happy to, you know, you know, stroke those fears and vote that way. Um, now, as you mentioned, Sheldon Adelson um, from Las Vegas Sands, so that's the Venetian and the Palazzo um, and Sands and Macau and all over the world, he hates online gambling. He thinks the, the Internet, I don't know if he fears the Internet in general or he just fears Internet gaming, but um, he doesn't want it to happen. And so he's spending money left and right getting bills introduced to block it. So that really influences a lot of people. I mean, money talks. We know that. Before we move on to the next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. Sponsors. This is normally the time in our show where we have sponsors. And potentially that means that you could be a sponsor. Think Like a Lawyer is seeking sponsorships. So if you're interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on Advertise. Papa needs a new pair of shoes. And we're back. So I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the, the kind of legal history that, that these laws are working with, but why aren't we at a point, especially in the era of fantasy sports, where we can accept some, again, de minimis gambling um, in the context of an NCAA bracket, yet we, you know, we can't, sorry, we can't accept it in, in, the concept of, uh, in the context of an NCAA bracket, yet we can accept it in the context of fantasy sports. Like, why is there that distinction? Yeah, I mean, we're getting there. I think you're, you're now seeing, you know, the media has picked up on it. Um, you know, I write about it all the time that people are now finally questioning, well, how is this really different? And legally speaking, how is it really different? And it's not. I mean, it's a complete, you know, legal fiction as to, well, one's a game of skill and one's a game of chance. You know, in terms of brackets, it's funny because I think for a while, you know, like PayPal, they wouldn't process payments if you were sending, you know, 20 bucks to a buddy for the bracket. Um, They would, you know, key, they would flag keywords. Um, And that's just ridiculous. You know, it's something everyone does in every office, uh, in every home. And is it really gambling? Is it really harming anyone? I don't think so. You know, and on this note, I'm going to shift this a little bit to a observation. It strikes me as though there just isn't really prosecution of this law. There's all these office pools are illegal and no one, the FBI is not is not tapping your phones for that purpose anyway. And part of that speaks to the big overarching problem with the way in which the federal government deals with crime right now, which is they put laws on the books and then don't bother to prosecute them. They just want them on the books. They view it as we're doing you a solid by not prosecuting instead of we're going to take it off the books. It's like they want to hold all these cards, kind of over-criminalize everything and then selectively enforce it. And that's how you end up with these situations where we have prosecutors gone wild. Well, the funny thing here is by criminalizing a lot of this, you know, sports betting and other activity, you actually then put it in the hands of criminals. 
because you yeah. can't go to the sports book in a casino, you know, that's owned by a publicly traded corporation and, and place your bet. Um, you've got to go to the bookie, um, you know, down the street or at Finally, the local let me bar. get back to my mob point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that, that has been, it's not something that they, <laughs> there's no lobbying organization that did this, but that's been the, you know, unintended consequence. Um, there is way more money wagered uh, underground than there is in Nevada casinos or to some extent the Delaware casinos. That's just the fact of the matter. I mean, I'd say probably, I think the, the reports are close to 90% uh, of all sports wagers are, you know, under the table. So okay, well, what do you want to do? Let me put my uh, Quaker hat on for a second. Friends Academy in 1996 represent and be the contrarian. When you're talking about, especially when you're talking about college sports, you're talking about kids, you're talking about sometimes homeless kids. Um, if you allow kind of widespread gambling on college tournaments, doesn't that create a situation where kids will be tempted to point shave, to throw games, to shoeless Joe Jackson, their whole situation? One of the reasons why sports leagues have an interest in keeping gambling out of sports, so they say is to keep the integrity to keep the game to, uh, to, for the integrity of the game. Um, are you at all persuaded by that argument? Sure. So that's the entire rationale behind PASPA. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, that's the, you know, that's the act, um, the professional and amateur sports protection act that was passed in 1992, which is what is supposed to, you know, protect the integrity of college sports and pro sports. Um, this is the fight. This is what New Jersey's fighting. This is what, you know, all these states are waiting to see if it will ever, you know, get overturned or repealed. So that's the argument. That's at the heart of the argument. But the counter to that is it's already happened. I mean, you <laughs> had point shaving scandals, um, you know, Boston College at my alma mater, Northwestern, um, all over the country. And it probably still happens, you know, not to maybe uh, such a, you know, well-known public extent. But I have no doubt that there are kids you know, getting payments to uh, miss a few free throws here and there. Um, that doesn't happen and it now. Per- well, <laughs> that, that we know of yet. Um, so it already happens. And here's the thing is that I think people don't realize is it's a lot easier when you're trying to find a bookie to lay down large bets to make it meaningful enough to, say, bribe someone. Uh, you know, and create some big scandal. Because that's what happened in Boston, which, you know, the ESPN did a documentary about. That was a Pittsburgh uh, mafia that was involved in that. And you've got to have people who can take those huge bets. If you tried to do that in Vegas, you would have multiple guys in suits coming out the second you tried to place such a large bet. You know, uh, people don't realize it is monitored. It's heavily monitored. Um, I can remember, you know, being at the win, and halftime lines, you know, are notoriously soft. And I placed a large bet on a halftime line, and a manager came out to speak to me and was, and was grilling me as to, well, where did you get this play? Did someone, did someone send this to you? You know, is this for yourself? And, you know, they took it. But you just can't do that if it's, if it's regulated and being watched. That's why you want to bring it out into the open. Did you win? Uh, we did win, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, when I get grilled yeah. by the pit boss in Vegas, it's always because I've been drunk and said inappropriate things to the to the blackjack dealer. Uh, <laughs> never right, heard so something awesome. They, there are, you know, the sports managers are watching these lines very closely and they're watching the plays. And so if there is a large amount of money that at one time, you know, on a ran, you know, some random game that's not a marquee game, it's going to raise eyebrows. 
Um, so you, I think it would, it would help bring it out into the open. Um, and you mentioned people with problems. Again, if they're in a casino, they can be put on, you know, betting limit lists or self-exclusion lists. You know, there are protections in place uh, that it's actually safer and been shown to be safer for gamblers um, that it's, you know, it, it's in a casino rather than with the local bookie. Well, I think that the other way to protect, I think, the games from the, the, the vagaries of sports betting, I think, would be to pay the players. If the players are making money, they would be less susceptible to bribes. Well, <laughs> probably. Uh, <laughs> but, I think we all, but I think we all watch NFL games and at the end of them say, uh, there's no way someone wasn't paid off. I mean, you know, especially, you know, all the Des Bryant's in the news for other reasons, but the catch in the playoffs this year, or, or the non-catch, how is that possible? I mean, we all watch these games and think oh, the ref had to have been pulled by the league to do one thing or the other. And so that suspicion's already there. And so this integrity of the game argument is ridiculous. I mean, that's part of being a sports fan. I think we all think, to some extent, maybe it's fixed, or at least that helps us sleep at night. So what are you really protecting? Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Hey, can I take a quick aside here? Because you mentioned the Des Bryant catch, and I think this is a good opportunity to have a real think-like-a-lawyer moment. What, what did you think about that? Was that a catch or a non-catch as you watched it? I mean, as I watched it, I think it was a catch. But <laughs> the rules are written in such a way, and in fact, a lot of NFL referees are, are lawyers or former yeah. lawyers. But yeah, I mean, you can, you can litigate that thing for weeks probably. I just thought it was a great example of like as I watched it, I was surrounded by people who were going nuts, and I was like, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a catch. And everyone's like, What are you talking about? And I'm like, Oh, I thought he caught it, but I'm pretty sure the rule is written such that that's going to turn out to not be a catch. And yeah, uh, I, I, every, Joe, I was hate, entirely with you. Besides yeah. my abiding hatred for the Cowboys, um, I think my abiding hatred for the Cowboys allowed me to see clearly um, that there was a rule in play there that was not gonna that that was gonna overturn that. It was well, really. I, it was just like the Calvin Johnson um, thing. Yeah, from a couple years it, ago. that's exactly yeah. what I said. I cited the same thing. I was like, "Do you remember precedent, Johnson?" Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it it just kind of signified how much we were lawyers, though. Like everyone in the bar is screaming, and I'm like, "Well, now let's see." <laughs> I remember precedent. <laughs> yeah, no that that's that's an excellent point. How much do you think Pete Carroll was paid for the uh, for the slant call for the pick play? Well, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, what else explains that? Um, <laughs> I mean, or he just didn't want Harry didn't want Marshawn Lynch to be the hero. I don't know. That's or that my favorite conspiracy theory that, that he didn't give the ball to Lynch so that Lynch wouldn't be more famous um, when they invariably uh, don't resign him uh, this year. Listen, anything's theory. possible with Pete Carroll. Um, <laughs> that guy, that guy might actually wear a tinfoil hat most of the time. Yeah. All right, guys, I want to transition to uh, Kentucky. It's tournament time. Kentucky, one seed. Depending on your point of view, Kentucky is either everything wrong or everything right with college basketball. Go, Joe, you start. Everything wrong, everything right. I'm going to go ahead and say neither uh, for this reason. I actually don't have a problem with the whole way in which Kentucky has been structured. I think that the one and done thing is annoying, but I think that they're perfectly within their rights to build a team that way. And given that the rules are what they are, I think he's Calipari's right to recruit that way. I think that the problem, this is one of those rare instances where I don't think the problem is the NCAA. I think it's the NBA. I think that this rule of basically forcing, forcing people to do something, adults to do something against their will, which is not go get NBA money 
just because the NBA managed to whiff a bunch of times on projecting talent. Well, is Brown. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Sebastian Telfair didn't, not as big a bust as that, but not great. Like, they whiffed a few times, spent a lot of money, and so the NBA all got together and said, how about we force people to do something against their will? That's ridiculous. Steve, Kentucky, everything good or everything wrong? I mean, it's everything just perfect about college sports. <laughs> because this is, you know, we're, we're getting around March now, and let me put this in perspective. CBS, which broadcasts, you know, March Madness, that TV deal is nearly $11 billion that they yeah. paid. Okay, $10.8 billion for 14 years to broadcast those games. So this is gigantic business, and Kentucky has figured out how to succeed at that business within the rules. And so, look, it might not always work out that you have a team of freshmen that can actually win. Um, you know, they could be talented, but for whatever reasons, they might not gel and win games. But they figured out how to do it, and it, it, I love it. It's such a mockery of the whole system. You know, every time that the that they say, uh, you know, well, the student part comes first. You know, remember that's why our lawyers put student before the athlete. Um, <laughs> just point to just point to Kentucky. I mean, that, that, that you know, it's perfect. And if they and so the reaction now, of course, because that's all the NCAA does. They're not they don't pioneer anything. They just overreact to you know tiny situations. So now it's oh well, Kentucky's too good. You know, they have one and done. So we need to change the rules and we need to make freshmen ineligible. All that's going to do is make the European leagues that much more better. Because yeah, if you're 18 true. years old, I mean, <laughs> you're 18, you're 19, you want to go play and the NBA, NBA is not going to let you go earn some money, you know, go earn a couple hundred thousand, you know, and, uh, and wait till you get drafted. I'm a liberal, so I like applying laws from different contexts to the current situation. So if I was going to do some Sharia law on the NCAA, I would look to baseball. Why can't we have a rule in the NCAA for college basketball similar to what it is in baseball, where if you want to go straight through from high school, go, knock yourself out, everything's cool. If you agree to go to college, you got to stay there for three years. Well, I don't know about that. I would be opposed to that. And the problem with the NCAA with baseball and hockey, too, is that you've got a kid who might be drafted, let's say he's not a first round, but he's somewhere in a mid-round, and he's right. got a signing bonus over his head. Well, what do you do? He can't even get help. In any other walk of life, you would hire the smartest advisor, whether it's an agent or just a tax person or a financial planner, and say, what's the best decision here? They can't. If they talk to anyone, then, they, then they're suspended and they're ineligible uh, in the NCAA. So that no, I, whole aspect is ridiculous. No, you get no argument for me on that. I think that's actually the second worst rule. Actually, obviously now I realize that the worst rule, rule is sanctioning people because they're homeless. That, that's the worst rule. But then the second worst rule now is certainly the fact that you can't even talk to a lawyer. Like you, you, if, if I get busted for selling drugs on the corner, I can talk to a lawyer. Jesus. But if I want to play basketball, I don't know. Am I a second round pick? Is that, am I going to be a first round pick if I go to school? I can't even talk to an advisor like that. That is their second worst rule. Yeah, well, well, think about it this way, right? The argument to make freshmen ineligible is that they need a year to, you know, mature and become college ready. At the same time, if you get drafted in the third round and you've got a $100,000 signing bonus, you're supposed to take that or, you know, go play at USC for two or three years. Um, It's ridiculous. And let's let's step back with the homeless player because this is is one of the greatest stories this week. 
<laughs> How about the fact that everyone in the nation, whether it's true or not, whatever the details are, we all heard the NCAA suspended a homeless player for taking it home and thought, yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, that was the general consensus. There's absolutely no shock. That's their problem. Uh, no matter whether they were in the right or what the details are, every single person who heard that story thought, yeah, it sounds like something NCAA would do. Does it bother you or does it bother uh, you, Joe, at all that the rules that the NCAA applies to the major uh, money-making sports, football, basketball, um, are so different than the rules that it applies to, let's say, Olympic sports? That strike anybody besides me as, you know, racist? I don't no. know. Wow. It, it's, is- it, no. it, it strikes me as though the difference in those rules have a lot more to do with the fact that certain of these sports make money. Uh, by, the, the sports performed by white people don't make money, yet their rules are much more amenable to student athletes getting some, you know, getting their sponsorship deals, getting what they need to do to compete. The ones that actually make money that are performed mainly by black people. Oh no. Now we have now, now it's when all the ticky tack rules come into play. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, track and field is largely a black, black athletes. Um, and they have a lot of insane rules in terms of the Olympics and sponsorship deals and all of that. And like, you know, Runners, if they can even take prize money, you know, competing in an off-season event, um, you know, to me, I would, I would, you know, absolutely let the free market dictate everything. Um, but that's just not going to happen. You know, there's there's money to be made, maybe not on the Olympic sports, but you know, the, you're always going to have this. You know, the, the, the college presidents and the ads are largely white um, and older white males, so you're always going to have that in the background. That's why everything's terrible. <laughs> All right, so we are at the uh, near the end of our show. Joe, do you have any yes, closing sir. thoughts here? Uh, not really. I just wanted to thank Steve for coming on to uh, rap about this stuff with us. Rap. See, that, that why, why I got to be a rap. See, and again, not, not where I was going with that at all, but I cheerfully withdrawn then. I'm glad he was <laughs> hey, here to talk. You know, white Jews can rap. I mean, we got yeah, great. It's true. Steve, thanks so much for, for coming on. And remember, that's uh, Steve Silver. He's at the Legal Blitz, also on Above the Wall Red Line. Great. All right, Ellie. I think this, uh, this brings us to the end. See you in a couple of weeks. All right. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.